to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Before we get in, just letting you guys know that if you are interested in our online coaching service, we do have spaces available at the moment. So if you're interested, you can find more information in the description box below. So in this episode, what we're going to be discussing is the topic of deloads or light training weeks and how they can play into fatigue management and potentially resensitization to future training stimuli because people use these in their training and some people never use them. I've never heard of them, these strategies. And I think it's a good topic to discuss on the back of the programming podcast that we've had in recent weeks. Yeah. So the first thing, first things first with this, um, I would just like to say that deload is not a word, right? And that might seem pedantic and semantics, uh, but I hate when people bring new words into the conversation and then people don't actually realize that they are not words. And the reason I'm saying this is because in my gym, someone has written, please ensure you deload the weights when you get off this machine, right? So that kind of shit just pisses me off because deload is not a word. You're supposed to say unload. You don't deload boxes off a a truck or something, you unload boxes. You don't deload your gun, you unload your gun or reload your gun, you know? <laughs> um, so just to get that out of the way, right? However, it is a word that's used in the health and fitness wor- world and we're not going to change that. So let's get on with uh, actually discussing the topic. So deloads are, as a concept, they are effectively, like Gary said, some sort of lighter training week you know um, and that can vary from no training some people like that you know three four five six seven days of no training um, and they get a, a, a detraining effect um, and that can also then vary to people doing one of two options generally either reducing the intensity i.e the weight on the bar they're still doing the same amount of sets reps same exercises all that jazz but they're just using a lighter weight. And then we also have people who deload using lower volumes in terms of say they were doing three sets of eight, they now do you know, one to two sets of eight. And sometimes they also reduce the weight, but sometimes they also just use the same weight and just deload by way of doing less volume overall. So again, if their workout did have, I don't know, 15 sets, 20 sets in total, they bring it down to whatever, you know, 70% of that, 50% of that, whatever they're using as their protocol, right? So they reduce the volume. And those are the kind of approaches you will see people utilize. However, you have to know what you're doing in terms of which one you then choose, right? Because you'll see people suggest things that potentially aren't aligned with their goals and it's probably because they're just listening to other people who may not be training for the same effect or the same adaptations, the same outcome. Um, but they're like, oh, well, that's what they said a deload looks like. So they then just copy that format, right? Which isn't necessarily bad. But we have to remember, like, what is the actual goal of a deload? Effectively, all we're trying to do is manage fatigue you know, manage fatigue over a longer time period, you know, whether it's, you're looking at it over a 
we our month-to-month block some people do like every fourth week they they deload or you're looking at it over a larger training cycle you know block of training where you know you use when i would say 12 weeks of hard training and then you deload you know but effectively all we're looking at is some form of fatigue management by utilizing lighter weeks of training so what you've added to that so far gary you know i think that's a pretty clear working definition of what we're actually talking about uh, because regardless of whether or not a deload is a word it's worth people understanding exactly what we're talking about in terms of the the practical real world application because a lot of people do plan these in their programs so they plan these kind of lighter weeks of training and as you alluded to this can come in the form of, of a couple of different variables so one way would be that you take your program that you have and you just take away a training day you know that could be a way of you reducing the stimulus reducing the amount of fatigue that comes with that you could be purely reducing the volume so for example one of the simple guidelines i often give to my clients is right reduce every exercise by one set per exercise this week and that will generally be a company with a guideline related to something like a rate of perceived exertion or rpe by saying all right let's take your sets that were rpe eight to nine so one two reps in reserve and bring them down to RPE six to seven this week, so three to four rep reserves. So that should then be pretty damn easy. And I'll generally layer on another aspect of that and say to them, you know, take your rest periods kind of as soon as you've as soon as you've recovered, make sure the training is nice and easy and just get out of the gym a bit sooner. And that can seem a little bit counterproductive if you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to short my rest period so much that I'm absolutely wrecked. But when you use that three to four reps in reserve kind of constrained in place anyway, you're kind of waiting until you're recovered. You're just in the way you're getting too challenging and you're getting out of the gym a bit sooner. So from my perspective, it's not just about the, uh, the purely the training stimulus and the fatigue that comes from that, but also the time allocated to training. Because generally what happens when you progress your training over the course of a mesocycle, so for example, if you've been training hard for four to six weeks and then you take a light week of training, what has probably happened is that your session to week see to week six, having more volume in the program. So you've got more sets um, or whether it's due, being due to increased rest periods because you've gotten stronger, you're closer to failure and you, you need more time to recover. That's, you know, totally, totally reasonable. And that tends to happen throughout the training program. So, if you can use your, your deload, your light week, as an opportunity to reduce your time in the gym as well, you get an additional kind of psychological and potentially you know, social benefit to having um, that light week of training. Only so you have less training stress and less fatigue, but you've got more time to allocate to things outside of the gym that you may wish to catch up on and that can make you feel like, right, I'm recovered, I had a good week, I started my shit out, and now I'm good to get into the next training week. So. That's what I always say to my clients is to look beyond just the training variables and to recognize that this week is about kind of, you know, tying up all the loose ends that have happened, that have you know gathered while you've been training hard the last, for the last few weeks. Um, so yeah, that, that would be the way I would generally conceptualize them. Yeah. So we need to kind of, first of all, think about things because the, the, the concept itself is actually really simplistic. It's a, a basically a method of fatigue management, right? Would you agree with that? Yep. Yeah, so that's that's all it is really, right? So we need to discuss a few things. First of all, do we need to bring in a deload week to manage fatigue? 
right? So we need to disclose that. So there's pros, cons, there's different ways of training. Again, we'll, we'll get into that in a second, right? The second thing we need to go is, should you be proactive or somewhat retroactive with programming deload weeks? And what I mean by that is, should you plan them ahead of time or should you just go, all right, this is a busy period in my life. So, and I've, I've noticed that fatigue has accumulated. So I'm going to drop back overall volume, intensity, whatever the fuck, you know? Um, so we need to discuss that as well, right? And then we can get into a discussion around how we can actually implement this. Because like Gary was alluding to there, and like I was touching on just before that, there are a few ways you can go about this. And you really have to just be aware of like, what, what are you actually trying to achieve? Not just necessarily the, the fatigue management, but what are you trying to potentiate in the future? Like, why are you dropping off fatigue at this point? Surely it's because, you know, in the future, the coming weeks, the coming months, you know, you want to produce better outcomes. You know, you want to lift heavier weights. You want, anyway, as I was saying, you want to potentiate better outcomes in the future. You know, you want to get in better shape. You want to be stronger. You want to lose weight. You want to do whatever. So like, why are you managing your fatigue right now? Like what's the, what's the, what's the reason that you need to drop off fatigue here at this point? Surely it's because you're trying to do stuff in the future, you know? So we need to be aware of like, where are we going with things? What's the overall goal, right? So again, we'll get into the, the application side of things, like how you should maybe think about this. And then also I want to just layer on on top of that, then nutritional considerations, because there are a few things that people have common questions around like, Oh, should I reduce my calories if I am, you know, training less, you know, or, you know, there is a concept. I actually really like the concept. I'm not the first person to think of it, but I think it's a, a, a more actual real world, real word. And that is uh, reload. And so you think of a deload rather like a reload where you are effectively reloading so that you can potentiate, you know, greater gains in the future. So you would do, you would treat it differently where you think of it like, oh, I actually want to potentially bring my calories up a little bit so that I can recover a bit more so that I'm managing fatigue by virtue of reloading, uh, you know, fuel substrates, uh, recovery, sleep, like you effectively, a reload in my mind um, would be something like you would increase calories and you would also increase recovery modalities and the main recovery modality would be sleep, you know? Um, so if you are normally sleeping eight hours, you're like, all right, this is my reload week. So my calories are, you know, up 200, 300 calories, whatever. And you don't obviously don't need a, a huge boost, especially if you have been in a, a surplus, but some sort of, you know, uh, increase in calories and then also an, an increase in say sleep. So if you are sleeping eight hours, maybe bump it up to nine, maybe even bump it up to 10, right? Either way you are managing fatigue by virtue of a reload of fuel substrates and recovery, if that makes sense. But anyway, we'll get onto that at the end. Right. And um, so the, the first thing we need to discuss is what did I say? The first thing was that we need to discuss. I don't know, man. You're not fucking listening, Gary, when your internet cut out yet again. I listened to points two and three, but I can't remember what the first one was. Anyway, either way, we do need to discuss a, a few things going into a deload. So it, if we're looking at a deload, what are... Like we obviously don't want to talk about the application just yet. We just need to talk about like the, the fatigue management side of things. So like, why are we thinking of a deload? You know? Like, w why would we bring one in? 
right? Because obviously we touched on it just there, but like what's, what's, what's the concept here? It's fatigue management overall, but should we be proactive, retroactive, plan our deloads? Like obviously it, it depends on the, the, the type of training that we are doing, what we're trying to achieve, but what are your thoughts on the, the proactive, retroactive side of things? Yeah, so when you first start the training process as a beginner, the gains just kind of roll in. You know, you you basically provide your body with a novel stimulus and basically anything is a novel stimulus. So you start to get adaptations very quickly and that tends to go on for quite a while. Most of you guys know that. But as we begin to transition into a more advanced state where we've already adapted to a lot of stimuli, what is the obvious next step is that you need to be far more progressive with your training. So your training sessions are going to be a lot more challenging and your training week is going to be a lot more challenging. And if we reflect on the podcast we've done on progression strategies and the way that we progress throughout a training cycle, we know that we're getting from, you know, a lighter week on week one of the program, an easier week, progressing up to more and more challenging training throughout the, throughout the training cycle. So as we get to weeks five and week weeks our training stimulus is going to be very close to you know basically we're basically pushing the boundary of what we can possibly recover from so we're kind of just we're really pushing that boundary up because we need to to keep getting those adaptations and as we do that as we push the boundaries in terms of what we're able to recover from we begin to accumulate more fatigue that comes along with that and honestly i've never found a better way to describe this than to actually experience it as in you know when you speak to a trainee that's more advanced or that has been training for quite a while, you just know what it feels like. You know, you when you get to those hard training weeks, your favorite exercises start to become a lot less exciting to do because, you know, the three sets of eight that you were doing at RP7 and we like, that was great. That was all fun and games. But now that you've progressed and let's say you are doing an ascending volume type strategy, if you're doing five sets of eight at RPE eight to nine on squats, like, that's awful. You know, like that's, that's just not fun stuff. Set one, maybe set two, maybe, but as the fatigue begins to accumulate and you're continuing to try and replicate your performance, it becomes an awful experience, you know, and say, but it's not a nice experience. And, and that then accumulates throughout the training session and throughout the training week as a whole. And you don't want to come in the next week and do your squats again on Thursday or your deadlifts again, because you know, you're already feeling fatigued from that, not just in terms of muscle soreness or reduced force production, let's say, but even psychologically, you're like, oh my God, how am I going to spend another 20, 30 minutes getting all these sets of squats done? Um, and obviously everyone sets up the training programs differently, but that's just one example of the way that it could manage. So generally what people will start to experience at that time is you may have increases in muscle soreness, you may feel like your legs are just kind of heavy or your body's just kind of heavy and tired. Some people have increases or difficulty with actually getting to sleep. They might, find, they might find that if they are tracking some things like resting heart rate and heart rate variability, that those things need to be disrupted and because your body is in a more fatigued or stressed state overall. Um, and that can be reflected in terms of the way that the autonomic nervous system is coordinating your cardiovascular system um, and that's basically how why, why people track some of those things sometimes whether they're useful or not is questionable but it can reflect it in this case 
So basically, you've got all these markers or these these subjective feelings, such as like reduced training motivation is another huge one, actually. And you may even find that your mood is a little bit a little bit volatile, especially if you're also dieting. It's not great because you're combining training fatigue and low energy availability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The point being, these things all start to accumulate and it's a case of you can only push so far okay because obviously as you begin to as you continue progressing those things you begin to potentially increase your risk of injury you know can you keep going from five sets of squats to six sets to seven sets as you get more and more fatigued without increasing your risk of injury that's unlikely you know so at that point where fatigue is becoming so high that it's difficult to come back into the gym every day and replicate your performance that's when we start to introduce these deload weeks or these light weeks of training because they're a tool that can help us to dissipate some fatigue without compromising our adaptations. And that's the point here is that if you are having a light week of training or even two light weeks of training, even a week of training off, you're not going to lose hypertrophy, so cross-sectional area, you know, other than maybe some differences in like fluid status or muscle glycogen replenishment, you're unlikely to see changes in those objective outcomes over such a short period of time. So that's an important thing for, for thing for people to realize. So the purpose there being accumulate more fatigue. We want to continue getting adaptations, but in order to keep driving adaptations, we need to reduce the fatigue that we've accumulated. So that is basically purpose and the overall rationale here. And this ties directly in with the second part of the question, and that is whether we should be proactive or reactive in terms of planning these training deloads. And it really depends on the type of person that you are, because if you're an advanced trainee and like over time, you've kind of assessed at what point you begin to get to that critical point of fatigue in your program. And you also know that like training is your number one priority and, and nothing ever kind of interferes with it, then you can have a fairly good idea of when you may need to include a deload. It may be the case that you're like, look, every fifth week, boom, that is my week. That's when I feel best when I have this light week of training. Um, or it may be the case that you say to yourself, somewhere between four and six weeks, I start to feel really fatigued. It's kind of open to me. If I feel like doing a fifth week, I'll do a fifth week. If I feel like doing a sixth week, I'll do a sixth week but it's very rare I can push on beyond the six week if I'm, if I'm engaging in progressive training. So they're the ways that an advanced lifter might actually plan it in a proactive context. However, what I find myself doing a lot of the time with clients is, is more so kind of reactive planning um, in that like life happens. <laughs> and that's, that's the case for like the vast majority of, of general population trainees. There will be a week where you know you have to take a light week of training. Like for example, if I look at my my own kind of schedule at the moment, so Christmas Christmas week, let's say, was a lighter week of training because I was spending more time with family, not being a deload week enforced upon me on that week, basically. So that was that was one one example. And how many weeks ago well, that was that? That was like four weeks ago. And as we kind of as we as we push on, we get back into training again. I'm going to have all the things that are built into my year, such as, right, I've got exams on the first week in March. Okay. So that's another week that, oh, that's probably to be a deload that would be, it would be a very convenient time. Maybe Easter week or the week after Easter when we're transitioning into more exams or the next part of the semester when we have more exams um, or summer holidays when I'm away for a week for the summer. 
these are the types of things that I'm thinking about with clients. And what I'll often say to people is, what have you got coming going on over the next three months? Because it, that may be the, the deciding factor in terms of how we plan training. Because if we're saying, right, you're going to deload every fifth week, but the, the individual happens to have a holiday in eight weeks, then what I might say is, actually, why don't we do a seven or eight week training program? And then what we can do is we can just be a little bit less progressive. So instead of ramping up to the most we know you can do, we'll be a bit slower with getting there. Maybe we'll keep some reserve at time points. And maybe it's the case that we might need a lighter training day here and there. And then we'll take that real relaxation recovery week on the week that you are on holidays. So that's the way that I kind of think about it. You can, you can be proactive, but to be, like, to be proactive, you would want to know more about the individual. So if the person's very advanced, uh, what they need, fantastic. If the person is hyper-focused on details and have everything planned, they might even benefit from that. You know, it, it just gives them the structure that they need in their life. Whereas if someone's like, I'm happy to kind of keep training, I don't really know when I feel fatigued, depends on what I'm training for exactly, you can keep it a bit more open-ended. And I think that's generally the recommendation I would have. Yeah, like I, I kind of like a, a bit of both effectively, like you're, like you're suggesting there. Like, for example, again, putting myself in, in context with this, coming up to Christmas, uh, I had obviously exams. I had two weeks of exams. The first week wasn't, you know, too much of an issue, didn't really impede on my ability to train. Again, considering that I'm training twice a day, four days per week, you know, earlier on training gy- the, the gym stuff and then later on training uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stuff. Um, so my exam schedule was quite nice that first week. So that was effectively week eight of my program. I had been training up to that point. You know, I had accumulated some fatigue. And while that was a, a heavy, like the, the heaviest week I had, and considering that I'd also had exams, you'd think, oh, stress is quite high. But with my exam schedule, with everything, it wasn't too much of a, a hindrance. I was still able to do that week eight. However, the second week of exams, that was a little bit more stressful for me so and obviously the time as well with the exams meant that my schedule was thrown off because obviously you have to study before the exam and you know you're in a different place than your normal situation and the time periods you know it, it takes you longer to drive home or whatever else your schedule is off so your normal schedule of training especially considering like Brazilian jiu-jitsu there's a class schedule I can't just rock up to it anytime like you can with the gym and um, so that was thrown off so I knew that second week was going to be harder so i had somewhat planned a deload week if that makes sense right because i was like my stress is going to be higher because of exams my schedule is going to be off so i'm going to reduce my overall training volume now for me that just meant that i was only training my four gym sessions right and obviously you'd be like oh well that's not really a gym or a a complete deload however my days had changed around i didn't have my normal like i normally do monday tuesday Thursday, Friday, I'm in the gym those those two days. I, I effectively do a, a lower upper split, you know? Um, so I moved that around. I wasn't training to my absolute max, considering that, you know, the, the week before I had already worked up accumulated fatigue, volume, whatever, uh, to get to that point where eight reps, that was the, the end of the training block. I was doing eight reps. Um, and, you know, it was quite hard for that. So the next week took a little bit handy. Then it was Christmas week. However, my in around my area, I'm in Dublin. So the gym's they're not really affected the hours not too much i know the rest of the country you get fucked but uh the gyms here they they, they kind of stay open most of the time they're even open on you know christmas day and stuff right and um, now my brazilian jiu-jitsu schedule was 
all over the place and that effectively that week was taken off. So that was somewhat of a deload week as well, right? So, but I still, I'll put the in context as well. I knew that I was going to Poland. I was going to Krakow for a week, you know, in, in January, right? And effectively between the end of exams and going to Krakow, I had a three week period, you know? And what I decided to do in that three week period was increase my volume and intensity more than I would for other time periods. You know, if I was, had other things, because again, I, I don't have college as a stressor at that time. I'm basically on holidays, you know? Um, so I trained as hard as possible for those three weeks, you know, because I knew I effectively had a deload coming up because I was in Krakow for a week. Right. And there was going to be no training or whatsoever, you know? So that in my mind, that's kind of somewhat, proactive because I'm planning up to that point, but it is also somewhat reactive because it's basically, oh, I have this holiday coming up. That's going to be an imposed, you know, deload. You know, I, I'm not going to spend four hours or six hours, eight hours, whatever, out of my week training, finding a gym in Krakow, going there, doing whatever, when, you know, I'm supposed to be on my holiday, right? And then that brings us to effectively the, the week just gone where now I'm back into my training schedule. And I know because I'm in college, we're literally have a schedule. I know for the next effectively 16 weeks, I don't have anything coming up apart from exams at the end that is going to impede on my ability to train, right? So I'm not proactively putting in any deload periods in that 16 week time frame. I'm just going to manage my fatigue over those 16 weeks, you know, because I'm like, I know I have those 16 weeks, they're good to go, then exams come up. And then, you know, maybe holidays come up, whatever. And there's going to be some reactive, you know, oh, actually, let's go on a last minute holiday to Spain or something, you know. I know that's going to come up over the summer, right? So I suppose what I'm saying is you, you need to look at, like, you're, like you were saying earlier on, you need to look at your, your time schedule and go, oh, let, like, what do I have coming up over the number of weeks? Do I have a, a nice time block to train for, you know, eight weeks, 16 weeks, whatever, 12 weeks, whatever it is. Do I have a time period where I'm like, yeah, I know nothing is going to really interfere with my training. And this is one of the benefits, even though like everyone always goes on about the negatives uh, of a, a, a nine to five schedule, you know, like if you know your schedule ahead of time for the next eight years, you know, you're like, oh yeah, I do a nine to five, I have two weeks holiday, you know, there's not exactly a huge amount that comes up if you have just you know, a regular nine to five. Obviously there's going to be times of the year where your, your business, your whatever, uh, profession you're in that it's you know busier like if you're a nine-to-five and you're an accountant like obviously there's certain times of the year when everyone's fucking throwing their accounts at you going oh i'm in the shitter here don't let the revenue kill me you know so there's obviously times where you know you're going to be busier they would be good times to have a deload where you're like all right again less time in the gym whatever uh, less fatigue less stress all that stuff um but for most people doing a nine-to-five you know say you're in i don't know sales or something like your schedule is pretty pretty locked down. Like, you know, exactly. Oh yeah, I have 12, 16, 18, 20, whatever weeks it is to just go at whatever target it is I've set myself, you know? So for that population, I would be like, yeah, just reactive deloads would make more sense. You know, if you're like, oh, like this week, I'm just not feeling that fatigue has accumulated. Like you said, Gary, you know, maybe motivation is down, all of that stuff. It, it, you've, you've effectively trained yourself into this overtrained uh, state, you know, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to reactively put in a, a deload here and reduce some of the, the built up fatigue. Right. So 
reactive, proactive, there's pros and cons to both. For most general population people, I like a bit more of a reactive, but obviously that depends on a few factors, like you were saying, Gary, like your, your training age. Like if you know, yeah, look, if I train hard for more than six weeks, the wheels start to fall off the wagon. Even if I am training in a, a moderate volume, moderate intensity range, I just, it, everything just seems to fall apart after six weeks. Like if you know that about yourself because you've been training for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, whatever it is, then you already have data to suggest that, yeah, programming ahead of time, uh, your sixth week, seventh week, whatever it is, as a deload week makes sense for you, right? But if you're just a gen pop person, you're like, yeah, look, I've been training for two, three years. I'm not really sure what they're talking about when they say like, yeah, I get to this point in my training where fatigue has really accumulated and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hating training. I'm not motivated to go to training or whatever. If you, if you don't know that, that, that point, you know, then being proactive and putting in like every fourth week as a deload or every sixth week, whatever it is, uh, you know, it doesn't really make sense to me at least, you know? So there are pros and cons to both. What are your thoughts, Gary? Yeah, it also just depends on like, you know, how you train, which is kind of what you're alluding to with the difference between the advanced and the, the gen pop person. Like if you're not training hard, like you don't need a big week to recover. I think like that, that is the case with a lot of people. Like a lot of people just kind of don't really, you know, even people who do maybe like go to failure um, in their gym and post their sets on Instagram. Like some of the times what you'll see is like, yeah, they they train to failure for two sets, but it's like one exercise and that's kind of all they care about. And then they kind of fluff out, fluff, fluff about for the rest of their workout. Kind of, you know, they're much further from failure. They're maybe introducing new exercises all the time. Just kind of, it's, it's all novelty based. And like, if you're just doing that, like you're probably not going to experience this fatigue that we're actually talking about. So, you know, these, these planned needed or necessary weeks um, of light training of recovery like they really are reserved for people who are who are really engaging in progressive training and accumulating the type of fatigue that would necessitate that that degree of recovery like for a lot of people in gyms you know who are you're missing sh sessions here and there anyway you know you're not having consistent training weeks like there's some days you're not feeling it you don't really train that hard like you're not really going to need a, a big recovery week so you know, they, they should be some prerequisites, I think, that would be in place before you start to think about these things, you know, that you are actually consistent with training, that it's not a case of you doing two days, one week, four days, the next, um, and maybe skipping exercises and things like that. Like they should be the prerequisites that you are consistently training hard. And then I think that's when you start to say, okay, these, these deload weeks, these light training weeks, these time for recovery, that might be a bit more necessary for me. Uh, because I think some people, they probably like it's 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 a minority. I think it looks probably more like a majority because of being in the kind of internet circle. But I think a lot of people deload when they they don't really need to, and um, just because it's kind of a thing. Like you know, you finish your program, you deload, and then you start your next program. A lot of the time, what I do with some of my clients is we'll basically finish off a training block. Let's say it's four or six weeks or eight weeks, and I just start the next training block with a disproportionately light week so you know if the average if the average level of effort throughout the training phase is going to be one to two reps in reserve then that first week might be three reps in reserve because it's much it's much lighter than what's to come so it's serving as one an introduction to the novelty that comes with the new program to get used to that 
but also potentially leading to a bit of recovery that from the fatigue that has accumulated, you know, and that might be enough for someone who has just been kind of training, you know, pretty casually. They're not bodybuilders, they're not powerlifters, you know, that might be enough. Or it might even be the case that even just the first two days of that new program are a bit easier. So I think that's important to realize too, is that you have some flexibility here and you could even micromanage it even more if you were that person who's like i'm not taking a deload week i just want to manage my fatigue and train consistently i like going to the gym and that's it you could say that right when you start to kind of feel like oh you know i'm having rough sessions you take one light training day and then see how you are in your next training day and if you feel good again you're like all right let's let's get stuck back in um, and that also relates to the nutrition variables which we'll discuss kind of in the next section of the podcast um, but yeah i suppose the point of that being there is some flexibility here. It doesn't have to be a fixed deload week. It could be a deload day. It could be a deload half week. Um, and it could be just be the case that you just need a new introductory week. With that said, the one caveat that I put in there is that for, for those advanced trainees who really do need the recovery or non-advanced trainees who really feel like they've pushed it too hard and they need recovery, if you are having a deload week, scheduling a deload week, I would schedule it with the same program that you just finished as opposed to going to the, the new program um, as in the intro week style that I described, because anytime you do introduce novelty, you are going to have a bit of muscle soreness. You know, there's that novel stimulus that you haven't yet adapted to. So it would actually be better to repeat lighter versions of the stimuli that you had already adapted to, um, to reduce that, that fatigue. Other ways of doing it would be something like a, a really light, uh, kind of the terminology Mike, Mike Tuchero uses. Um, he, you can use a pivot week or a pivot block where you basically have more variety in your program for a certain amount of time. And that's more when you start to talk about things like resensitization then to the stimuli. Um, so if you were just doing flat bench press for months and months and months on end, you might have a block where you just do some close grip bench press and some spoto press variations and in that kind of pivot block but that's getting a bit off track for the moment point point there was fairly clear i think you do have flexibility <laughs> and it's not a case of a, a fixed deload week yeah i think we're kind of moving into the application side of things which i just we will but i just want to get a few things also cleared up like you were saying earlier on gary it's a uh, you have to consider the way you are training, right? And I'm going to give, because we've already discussed them on the podcast, so obviously you're going to have listened to that, but effectively what we're saying or we're suggesting, there are two main training methodologies people use. And the first one is, you know, use some sort of RPE or reps in reserve. And in my mind, that's probably how the vast majority of people train. Even the people who say they train to failure, you know, when you see them actually train, they're generally one to two reps shy of failure, you know? And then you have people who are actually training to failure, you know, um, where they're, they're going balls to the wall. They're getting reps where I'm like, yeah, you maybe have, you know, one to two reps in reserve there and they're getting, you know, three extra reps there, you know? So you're like, okay, you, you sir are going to failure. Right. And the majority of people are not training that way, even though they make it out that they are training that way. You know, would you agree with that? All right. Yep. Okay. Um, so that, that's the way I see it. So there's effectively two, two methodologies here, right? There are also then sub kind of categories within that where people who would train, you know, further away from failure, their progressive methods might be over a training block. They get closer to failure, right? So they might do that or they might keep their 
or PE, reps in reserve, whatever, fixed throughout a training block and increase the amount of volume via, you know, sets that they are doing. You know, we discussed that before. And so by the end of, we'll say four weeks, they started on whatever, 10 sets per week for a body part. And then over the course of those four weeks, they got up to 20 sets, you know, obviously that's a, a huge jump, excuse me, but you get the idea. That's what someone is doing. They're, they're increasing their set volume overall over the course of a, a training block. Right? So there's a few ways to come at this. There's a few, you might come from different paths. You might have different training methodologies, whatever else. Right? So you have to then consider like, what, like what are you trying to do when you as an individual, given your training programming, what are you trying to reduce fatigue from? Right? Because that then influences the application stuff that we're going to touch on now in a second. So you must consider like, okay, if, if you were training to failure, like what is the first wheel to fall off the wagon? If you want to talk like that, you know, where like, what's going wrong? Are you feeling that there's too much volume in your program or is it, you know, muscular fatigue you're experiencing? Is it joint stress you're experiencing? You know, we'll call it joint fatigue, you know, connective tissue fatigue. Um, are you experiencing like neurological fatigue where, you know, maybe you are getting these like demotivated, do not want to train. Maybe you're getting some reduced power output, that kind of stuff on the heart rate stuff as well. You might see something like that as well, where, you know, you just can't get your heart rate up. Like you can't, there's no extra gear. Like you're really trying to push hard. And normally given this exercise, whatever this programmed cardiovascular event, you know, you're like, Oh, uh, I could normally get my heart rate up to like 180 on this. And you know, I'm struggling to get it past 160. There's just, uh, there's no extra gear there. Right. And um, cause that's also a consideration. You'll see that with people who periodize their cardiovascular work um, as well. You know, you'll see that kind of stuff when you get to that point of fatigue where, you know, you're not able to actually perform like you want to perform, you know? Um, so there's that, like, what, what are you actually experiencing? And again, you have to then layer on like, what are you training like so that you experiencing, or you experience those fatigue symptoms, right? Like, have you progressively increased your overall volume? And now as a result, you're like, all right, I feel fatigue just all over general malaise and, you know, my body is just kind of sore. Like that's going to necessitate a different kind of uh, fatigue management strategy of a deload versus someone who's like, yeah, I've actually had a set number of sets. Maybe they're doing a top set and a back off set. And the, the next thing I'm going to move on to, or I've been progressively overloading that. And, you know, I've gained 20 kilos maybe you haven't gained 10, 20 kilos actually, like we were saying before, you know, you have to consider neural adaptations and stuff. This is a new exercise, et cetera, whatever. But you've done eight weeks of training. You've progressively overloaded this exercise and you're now, at, you're now touching weights where you're like, I've never even considered using this weight before. You know, I feel so strong, but I am feeling this kind of nervous system. Like, oh, like I just, I don't want to train that exercise. Don't think I can go in. There's too much hype, too much, you know, you have to work yourself up too much to perform that exercise. Well, you know, you're at a, such a weight where it's, it's pretty much at your rep max, whatever it is, your five, six, seven, eight, whatever rep max it is. You're, you're, you're at that point where you're, you're, you're actually reaching true failure, you know, really true failure. Like next week, very unlikely that you're going to increase the weight you're using. Right. And so what I'm saying is you have to 
assess how you came to the point where you need a deload, right? Again, it obviously assumes that we are training progressively and, you know, not like a bitch. Uh, you are actually training hard, whether that's with reps in reserve and you are still doing that correctly, or you are training to complete failure every session. I put that in inverted commas, complete failure. Um, you know, so you have to assess where or what brought you to that point, because that's then going to influence how you actually apply your deload, like how you actually set up and structure your deload. Right. Do you have anything to add to that, Gary? No, sir. All right. So it's good. When you then consider it, there are a number of ways you can do this. Like Gary said there a second ago, this is, this is actually an approach that I use with the vast majority of my general population clients. You know, I don't actually program a deload. What I'll do is I'll program a lighter week, you know, coming into their, their next training block, which effectively people would consider a deload. But what I'll do is I'll, cause I like a, an accumulation intensification style of programming where we'll do sort of like four weeks or so of like a higher rep range, say, and then four weeks or so of a, a lower rep range. So, you know, over the weeks, months, whatever, we are progressing multiple rep ranges and stuff. Um, and, you know, you're, you're able to progress different attributes, you know, um, and some people will like the higher reps. Some people will like the lower reps. They all feed in whatever, as long as you're getting stronger over time, we're, we know we're on the right track. Right. And, um, but what I'll do is I'll tell people, you know, the, the first week when we change over, even if it's like effectively in the style of program, every fourth week is a, a mini deload, right? Because, you know, you might go, okay, if we were, if we were to program RPE or reps in reserve, you know, that first week might be three to four reps in reserve. Um, and then as you get through that training block, you might be like, all right, the first week, three to four reps in reserve. The next week is, you know, two to three reps in reserve. The next week is one to two reps in reserve. And then the last week we're like zero to one reps in reserve, right? So you've effectively, you know, brought that training block up to be harder over time. Assuming you keep the uh, volume fixed, you know, you're like, all right, again, we do 15 sets per muscle group per week. You're just like, that's, that's my volume. If that stays consistent, that's not a variable that we're changing. Um, and all you've changed is your intensity, you know, how many reps in reserve you have or RP if you want to use that. Um, you've essentially done a lighter week, slightly heavier week, heavy week. Oh, very heavy week, you know, and that effectively is just fatigue management overall. And if you're doing that in four week blocks, that's generally what I kind of program. And if you're doing that in four week blocks, you're effectively doing little mini deloads every fourth week, you know? So every time you change the, the, the program, you're like, okay, at the last 12, say we keep the exercise consistent. Say you're like, the last time I was doing a block of 12 reps and then I was doing a block of eight reps, right? When you go to do the next, next block, you're like, all right, I'm going to go back up to 12 reps. And you know, your 12 rep max was a hundred kilos. That fourth week of that last training block at 12 reps, you were like, whew, yeah, hundred kilos. That's, that's pretty much failure. That, that was, that was the business, right? So you're like, all right, I want to keep, you know, two to three, maybe four reps in reserve for the next uh, 12 rep blocks. So you're like, all right, I'm going to do 90 kilos for those 12 reps, right? You just reduce the, the weight on the bar. You still go for your 12 reps, but you're like, it was a little bit easier. I'm going to get back into the rhythm of doing 12 reps, having done a block of eight reps, right? So it gives you some sort of like potentiation, you know, some sort of 
motor learning, I suppose, uh, inter or intra-workout fatigue management, because obviously if you're doing a, a lot of higher rep stuff, like you have to know how to partition your, or portion out your energy usage throughout that workout, you know? Um, so it, it's good for that. Um, and then again, by the time you get to the next four week block of eights again, you know, it's the same exercise. You're like, all right, I know I got up to 120 kilos that last week for eight reps. And the next time I go to that, I'm only going to do 110, right? Um, and then again, over the next few weeks, you're going to build that up and hopefully get past that 120 that you got to before, right? So you're effectively doing a mini deload, which would generally be called, you know, a ramping up, you know? So there is that consideration that that could be classified as a, a deload, you know? Would you agree with that so far, Gary? Yes, sir. All right. Just making sure you're still paying attention, you know? Um, then you have effectively two other methods that you could use, right? So whether you proactively or whatever, reactively, uh, plan your deload, you have two methods, right? And again, it depends on how you are training and how you will then set up your, your deload, right? Well, actually we have three methods. I'll, I'll get onto the third one as well. Um, so you have, first of all, a reduction in weight, right? So you can just reduce the amount of weight on the bar. You know, and it's probably more than I was suggesting in the, the last example there where it's like, oh, we'll just drop off like 10 kilos or something, you know, and with this, most people would suggest you use like 70%. That's generally a number that's thrown around, you know, 70% of the weight that you were using. So if you were using hundred kilos and that was the, you're like, oh, I'm reaching failure at that point. I'm going to deload next week. The, the weight you would use is roughly 70 kilos right? So you're like, all right, I'm still going to do the same sets, reps, etc. I'm just going to reduce the, the weight I'm using, you know? So you're getting some sort of deload effect from the fact that you're just lifting lighter weights, you know? They're not as fatiguing. You're like, all right, I'm kind of just going through the motions with this. Like, yeah, it feels like I'm doing something, but it's, it's not really fatiguing. You come out of that session feeling like quite fresh, you know? You're like, yeah, I definitely exercised, but I feel good after it, right? So that's one method, right? The next method then would be, like we were saying earlier on, a reduction in your overall volume. Now you can do this two ways. You can just drop off sets, which is something that I kind of like to do when it's like, all right, we're just gonna program a deload. You have three sets to do. We're gonna do one set of each exercise, or whatever, you know, or you're doing four sets, you're gonna do two sets, right? You're just reducing the overall volume by reducing the amount of sets that you do, right? Um, you could, again, like I was saying earlier on, reduce training days. You could, like, there's loads of ways you can do this. Either way, you want to reduce the amount of total volume of work that you are doing, right? You can reduce the sets. You can also reduce the reps, right? Again, this would be somewhat like uh, or, or reps in reserve training, right? Where you would effectively be like, right, that's my 12 rep max, you know, 100 kilos, and that's my 12 rep max. So on my deload week, I still want to be touching that hundred kilos because, you know, it, it makes me feel good about myself that I, I've got that. Time. I don't want to be lifting lighter weights than that. And um, you would just do, I don't know, seven to eight reps, you know? So it's, it's nowhere near failure. You know, you're, you're again, four to five reps away from failure. So you're like, right, well, the, like, yeah, there's probably one effective rep in this, but it, it, it's not really fatiguing. Like, well, yeah you are still lifting your heavy weight. You're just doing this for so few reps that it's not really fatiguing by the end of it, you know? 
And so there's a number of ways to structure this, right? And then the final one that I want to just touch on is effectively just no training, right? So this, some people like this and it makes sense why they do. And you can even get into some of the stuff about resensitization, which we'll, we'll touch on in a second, where they're like, oh, anabolic signaling pathways, you know, you give them a, a complete clear out by not stimulating them, which is not technically correct. Um, but you're like, yeah, complete. I don't even touch these anabolic pathways. So they go, oh, well, let's downregulate or whatever. And then you can start training again, touching on them again. But anyway, irregardless, uh, you can effectively just not train. Right. And again, this, this can be good for gen pop because you're like, all right, you're away for a week on holidays. You know, you don't have access to a gym. This is our deload week, right? Where it's like, you're just not training. That's cool. Right. Some people also like this. If they are someone that really is pushing weights, really is, you know, building up a lot of, we'll call it a psychological fatigue where, you know, every gym session is now becoming like effectively a battle where you're like oh man i need to add weight to the bar like you have to get so psychologically amped up for every single session that you're just like uh, where yeah if you just have effectively a week off you know you're, you're you're psychologically you're able to reduce all that fatigue all that need to get hyped up and all that kind of stuff. And then again, you start ramping up the training, volume, intensity, whatever it is, you know, that can be really nice for quite a lot of people. So it really depends on the manner in which you're training. And then also like what you're trying to get out of the deload, because if you're training for, we'll say higher intensities, you know, you're doing one to two sets and they're getting close to failure, like doing a deload where you reduce the number of sets you do, or the amount of volume you do, that's probably not going to do a huge amount for you, right? So say you're doing, you know, a, a top set on a back off set and all of them are like, are to failure. You're like, yeah, I'm really pushing myself. Like just dropping off one of those sets on each of those exercises. Like there's still one set where you're like, I'm fucking gunning for it. You still have to, you know, go for that. So that's probably not going to be a great method for you to utilize. However, doing something like, reducing your your training intensity where you're like all right i'm still going for a top set and a back off set so your volume stays the same but you just keep like five reps in the tank on your top set and your back off set you know you've reduced your your fatigue from that training session you know so that might be a better approach for you you know or you're just taking a few days off from the gym again you're not touching any of those weights so Again, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a drop off in the fatigue generation, you know? Um, so it really does depend on what you are doing, how you are training, how you are structuring your training. And then it influences how you actually set up your, your deload, you know? Like it has to make sense with what you're doing, you know? And this is where sometimes I feel people kind of miss the boat, you know, where they're like, oh, I've programmed a deload every three weeks uh, or every fourth week effectively. Because, you know, I did like Wendler 531 before when I was, you know, uh, back in the day when I was trying to be a big, strong powerlifter. And now I'm doing more bodybuilding style work and they're effectively doing something. They're, they're effectively doing a deload that doesn't make sense for the style of training that they are doing. You know, they're like, oh, I just reduced the, the intensity that I use for those exercises, which, yeah, it's definitely going to get some sort of deload. Uh, effect you know but the, their training style now is like oh well i do a load of volume you know so it's like all right well you probably would get better effects from a deload if you just 
reduce the amount of volume. Like you're always at that kind of 20, 25 sets uh, per, per week, per body part. And it's like, right, well, you probably would get a bit of a better deload effect if you just did, you know, a week of like 10 sets, you know? Um, so you have to take into account how you are training and what you're actually training for in the future, you know? Yeah. So like from the application perspective, I already discussed earlier, basically that, that, that concept of being proactive or reactive. I discussed the fact that you can be flexible. It doesn't have to be a rigid training week and that it could be a couple of days. It could be many of the strategies that Patty's discussed. Um, importantly, I think to reiterate that point that it, it's worth asking like what the, the limiting factor is in terms of like what is causing you the most fatigue and then catering your deloads to that. Because I have seen some people where they maybe just pull off a set or two, but they're still training absolutely all the way to failure because they're like, oh no, I'm just not willing to not do that. It's like, well, that's dumb. If you want to like be a, a smart training in the long run, and uh, it makes sense to you know pull back the things that are causing you the most fatigue. And as we've discussed in the last couple of episodes, like hitting, going all the way to failure is very fatiguing, especially on multi-joint movements. So if that is the main contributor to the fatigue that you're accumulating, then that will be something worth addressing. So as we said, you know, there are multiple variables. You could adjust just how close you are to failure. You could adjust your volume. Um, you could even adjust, adjust, you know, your repetition ranges. It might be the case that you want to actually not do uh, triples this week, even if it is the case that you feel... Um, you know, that you're, you are staying three reps in reserve or you're staying around that three reps in reserve mark because that still necessitates you to work with like 80 plus percent of your one rep max. And it might be the case that you're just like, I only want to do 50 to 60% of my one rep max this week, which again ties into exactly what you're deloading and what is the nature of the fatigue. Because if you're implementing this because you started to get really bad back or hip pain in your low bar squat, then going with that 50 to 60% of one rep max approach might actually be a bit better option than continuing to do triples with 80, 85% and because, you know, the load may be a, an important factor there. So, so yeah, there's no one prescription. And I think that's what people always look for, but we can't necessarily give it. It is about, you know, being aware of what the purpose of the deload is. It's also about being aware of who does and does not need to worry about this stuff. I think a lot of trainees probably don't need to sweat it too much. I think it's good to be aware of the, the fatigue management and be aware of the tools that are at your disposal. But if you're never getting all those symptoms that we've described, um, or you're getting them from clearly other causes, such as sleep deprivation, um, under eating, et cetera, um, then you know, these changes in training variables may not be the biggest thing you need to worry about you're dead right right now before we get on to the topic of nutritional considerations and this aforementioned reload i just want to touch on this concept of resensitization so you were talking about the the pivot week there that kind of concept so just expand on that a little bit i don't want to spend too much time on this because quite frankly i actually for most people for most goals, I'm like, ah, like it's just such a minor level concern for people that are like power lifters and stuff. I'm like, yeah, it definitely makes sense to vary up your exercise selection over time. 
you know, just doing different variations and you can call it resensitization or whatever. But realistically, in my mind, I'm like, it's also just fatigue management in terms of like joint structures and stuff. You're like, you don't want to get overuse injuries. That may be a, a, a simplistic way of thinking of it, but you know, I, I'm just like, all right, it makes sense to vary your exercises over time. If you want to be a well-rounded individual overall, you know, um, unless there are exercises that you're just like, these just fit my mechanics just like beautifully. And I'm like, yeah, milk them for all they're worth, you know? Um, but expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So I'm not going to go into detail on all the merits of exercise variation because we will definitely have a podcast on that. But what I do want to touch on is how this relates to that question of resensitization, because like, I'm not so sure like of the extent to which we can really um, use training to resensitize ourselves to future training stimuli in a way that really moves the needle forward. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's something to it, but I'm not sure we have the nail. We're hitting the nail on the head in terms of what the actual mechanism is. So in terms of like the, the proposed, I guess, theory that people would have would be that, as you said, if we adjust our stimulus and we go with training that would be considered to be maybe less hypertrophic or less anabolic, that we would then be able to build more muscle um, or that we would be able to um, build more strength. So by backing off the stimulus that is most conducive of the outcome, we sensitize ourselves to the stimulus again, and then we're able to move forward. And I'm definitely interested in that and think there might be something to it. Okay. So I, I definitely interested in that, interested in that open to it. I think it's a, it's nice thinking. I think it relates well with a lot of other concepts in biology and in health and disease and stuff. So I think that there's, there's probably something there to some degree, but I think, I don't think it's the main purpose for which we should try and justify changes in training because one of the things that Mike Tuchera talks about and he's the guy who basically coined that term of, of the pivot week or I think it's his terminology not important but this is what he I've heard him discuss multiple times is like he's becoming more and more convinced as he becomes more experienced and he is very experienced um, that the, the purpose of kind of including these periods of variation and these periods of different stimuli like inter process and looking forward to your next session and feeling motivated and excited and pumped for the gym that that is part of the battle and like from my own perspective and from observation of clients like that is absolutely true and i think there's a lot to be said for that even though it's not as sexy and you know it's it doesn't sound as fancy or as it's not a deep physiological mechanism but it is something that is very clearly observable um, in all the gyms that you go to you'll go to some gyms and you'll see some guys and girls doing the same workouts every single week from months on end and it's just like they have a certain weight that they use in every exercise and that kind of it whereas if you're if you're dealing with people who are really taking their training seriously as we said earlier there does come a point where you're just like, oh my God, I cannot face barbell back squats again. I just can't do it. I can't do sets of eight again. I need a change. And even for a bodybuilder who's trying to chase muscle hypertrophy, if you have a low volume block, let's say, of four weeks of training where you're just doing fives, nothing above five reps, and maybe you're kind of pushing on your strength a little bit, that's your main goal. 
then that's keeping you interested because suddenly this is novel. You're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm actually going to work on my deadlift technique as well because, you know, I feel like it was easier to kind of get away with some technique devi deviations when I was doing 12s. But now that I'm doing fives, like I really need to start nailing this. So you might've found a new cue that works um, or uh, <coughs> breathing slightly. Or you might have found that, you know, the, the, this is when I'm going to use my music to get me pumped or, or whatever it is. It doesn't really matter. The point being that there are things beyond just the, the kind of the mechanisms that can make training more progressive. So that is one of the very strong arguments for training variation. And in this case, varied stimuli um, in general um, for me to forward. And I think that does account for a lot of the potential resensitization but as i said i think the the actual physiological stuff is really interesting too and i'm excited to see what comes of that yeah i always kind of look at it like exactly like he was suggesting there um where it gets kind of boring after a stage where you're effectively doing the same exercise and you're like all right i did 12 weeks of this exercise and i gained five kilos or 2.5 kilos on that lift you know and like well that's motivating you're like yeah progress it's fucking awesome you're kind of just like, all right, well, it's not that exciting. What am I going to do? Another 12 weeks and gain another 2.5 kilos on that lift, you know? Um, so it does get somewhat boring, the, the whole process. Now, if you're a power lifter, sorry, man, you have to suck it up, you know? Like, that's, that's your sport, you know? You, that's what you chose to do, right? So you're going to have all this blood, sweat, and tears out over 10 years to gain five kilos on your lift, you know? I'm sorry. It is, it is what it is, you know? Um, but obviously you can still enjoy the, the training process by still bringing in novel stimuli, which are accessory work maybe, you know, um, but bringing in for gen pop, like there are no real exercises that you need to do. You must do, you know, and that's also sports specificity unless your, your sport is, you know, uh, a training or an exercise in terms of like, say it's an Olympic lift, like you're going to need to do them. Sorry. Um, so like I always think, I'm like, what, like realistically when we get down to it, you know, if you do something like a, a hack squat or you do something like a front squat, it's like, what is the actual difference here in terms of what you're trying to achieve? Like what's the stimulus? Maybe doing a block of front squats really allows you to be like, all right, cool. I actually really dialed in on this exercise. I'm, I'm seeing progress on it. It's something I haven't done before. I'm, you know, oh, I'm getting a better rack position. I feel like I'm working on my flexibility. It's giving me some goals with that kind of stuff as well. I feels like, oh, I have to brace a little bit differently when, than when I was doing my, my back squats. There's some novel stimulus in there. And you're like, all right, cool. Like that's, that's good. But then once that starts to kind of like plateau, you're not really gaining strength on it. You're not really gaining. It's not, not novel anymore. You know, like what's the real difference between changing to something like a, a hack squat? You know, you're like, oh, actually, now I've changed to a hack squat. It's like, oh, my, my legs, they actually feel like they're working a bit more. I feel my quads a bit more. This is fun now again because I'm like, all right, now I can actually see progress. I feel like I'm actually activating muscles here. I can focus more in on that. You know, so that's something good. But you can also make the argument for something like, say, a, a lunge. You've always done squats. That's always been, you, you go into the, your workout and squats are your first exercise. Always, without fail, right? You do a lower body workout, squats. You're straight into that rack. What if we did a block where you were doing lunges as your first exercise, you know, where you really tried to progressively overload your lunge, you know, like you're still in somewhat of a squat position in that bottom position. It's somewhat of a squat variation. You could, you could argue. Um, we are like, what, what would, what would happen realistically with your hypertrophy goals, with your strength goals? If we did a block where we really tried to progressively overload 
your lunch, you know, and you're like, all right, what would actually happen? And you're like, oh, maybe I get better results in terms of my, my ability to produce force in each individual leg. Maybe I get better outcomes in terms of hypertrophy. You feel it, you know, you, your, your quads are working a bit more. Maybe your glutes now, you're like individually, they're getting a bit more attention. You're like, oh, I've never actually felt that kind of stretched position that a, a lunge gets me into. And you're like, all right, cool. And really push that. And then you go back to doing something like your back squat, which you have been doing. And you're like, oh, actually this, this feels better. Well, yeah, it's taken me a few weeks to kind of get into a good rhythm with it again because effectively you have to relearn it. it it feels better it feels novel again it feels fun now i'm like progressing that so i i definitely think there is a a strong argument for that kind of novel aspect you can make a load of physiological um mechanistic hypothesis hypothesis um in terms of you could be like, all right, well, you're actually using slightly different, you know, muscle fibers, they're different, you know, uh, tension length relationships here. There's different, uh, you know, stimulus effectively on different muscle fibers, even if they are the same muscle fibers, you know, there's, you effectively have a different stimulus, right? And you can make a lot of arguments where it's like, yeah, you're going to get slightly better results, like hypertrophy wise or whatever from that. Um, it's going to take me like three hours to edit this um but yeah you could argue that you're going to get better like hypertrophy results from that because you know you're putting tension on different muscles different muscle structures different joint structures different connective tissue all that kind of stuff so you could argue that you know you're getting a different stimulus and you know you're potentially building more muscle better muscle whatever way you want to look at it and that can also then potentiate better results in exercises going forward like you can make a strong argument that you know the limiting factor for you as an individual in say you're a powerlifter might be the fact that you need more muscle you know and while the bench press might be a great exercise for building muscle for tommy it's a shit exercise for building muscle on their your chest for you you know so maybe you doing a block of chest press you know plate loaded chest press where you really progressively overload that feel your chest working a fucking ton you build a load of muscle on your chest and you're like oh all of a sudden my bench press when i go back to that is fucking off the chain you know i'm really progressing it because you've built more muscle you know so you could argue that that's you've resensitized to that bench press but realistically it's just like you've actually targeted the adaptations that you need to target to actually progress your your lift you know, so there are pros and cons, merits, and a lot of discussion. We'll probably talk about that at another stage. And um, the other thing I just want to touch on is some of this resensitization to anabolic stimuli, you know, where people make this argument where they're like, oh, like if you're always hammering these pathways, you know, you have to give them a, a break. They, they, they're always stimulated. You have to give them a break where, you know, they can effectively renew proteins and protein structures and whatever else you know uh, you, you look at the signaling pathway and you're like oh well like if you're always stimulating it it needs like some sort of refractory period you know and people will make that argument where it's like yeah i'm going to take a, a week off the gym and effectively let receptors clear out or let these proteins you know remodel or do whatever and like there is some some benefit to that to an extent but also you have to realize that you know the time period that you're looking at, like this, this stuff kind of does occur on a, a day-to-day process or a day-to-day period. So like you're going like, Oh, I, I trained really hard for an hour. It's like, yeah, like you're 23 hours where you're not training. So it's like every single day, these receptors are being cleared out or these anabolic processes, these proteins are being renewed. Like, it's not like you are physically training all the time, 
you know, people make that argument as well with nutritional practices like fasting and stuff where they're like, oh, well, you know, you get upregulation in autophagy and you get like fucking apoptosis and all this. I'm like, like somewhat meaningless, you know, like, yeah, there's, there's benefits, there's pros, there's cons, but is this the thing that's going to be, you know, the, the make or break of your results of your health and longevity and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, probably not. You know, so while there is like this mechanistic hypothesis that you can go, this is the thing, ah, real world kind of trumps that, you know? So do you have anything else to add to the resensitization? Because then we're just going to touch on the reload. No, no, let's go with it. All right. So straight on to, straight on to the reload. So reloading that going with a real word. Um, so with the concept of uh, a reload, the first thing I just want to discuss is nutrition as a whole, effectively, with regard to fatigue management. Because obviously that plays into it. Like Gary said earlier on, just touched on, where it was like, obviously if you are in a diet period where your calories are insufficient, effectively, or you're just borderline sufficient calories to you know, support the training you are doing to whatever, either way, recovery is going to be impacted slightly. You know, you don't have a surplus of calories to, you know, get you through any extra training. So fatigue is going to be a little bit higher just by virtue of having lower energy. Very simple concept to understand, right? So if you are in a, a, a dieting period, you know, fatigue is probably going to be higher and maybe programming deloads makes more sense then. So again, like you have to take into account the whole context of your overall nutritional periodization as well as your training periodization right? Like the two of them are intertwined. You know, it's effectively eating is a recovery modality. <laughs> effectively, if you want to think of it like that, right? And it's also a stimulus for growth, you know? So it is an anabolic stimulus. So those people that think you're resensitizing to this, you better stop eating in that time period as well. Um, anyway, irregardless, that you have to consider nutrition when you are discussing fatigue management, not even just deloads, just fatigue management in general, right? Because um, it is something that gets kind of overlooked because people are like, oh, well, what exact training variable should I manipulate and whatever? And it's like, are you eating enough? And they're like, no, I've never focused on getting enough protein in my diet. And you're like, that's probably a bigger hitter than whether you should drop off sets or weight or anything like that, you know? Um, get your diets uh, dialed in. Right, so that's the first thing we need to consider. Your diet plays a role pretty straightforward there's no need to go into a, a deep explanation of this because it's pretty easy to understand that if you have less energy you have less energy right so how does this play into the the concept of uh, a reload right if you look at nutrition as a variable that you can manipulate for fatigue management like we know it manipulates it if we're in a uh, a deficit of calories, we know it impacts fatigue, right? If we're in a surplus of calories, we know it impacts fatigue in terms of if you have more energy available, well, you have more energy available, fatigue is probably going to be a little bit lower, you know? Results are probably going to be a little bit faster, right? Does that mean that just because you're in a surplus, you can get away with training like an idiot? No, but it probably means that you can get away with training like an idiot for longer than if you were in a deficit. You know, so there is a little bit of wiggle room that it gives you, right? And we can use that to our advantage. If we know there is a training block where you've accumulated a load of fatigue, you could somewhat reduce that fatigue by doing an increased week of calories, 
You know, like if you did a training block where you're in and around maintenance, you know, and you're like, I did eight weeks of that fatigue really fucking ramped up. You could do like a week. It would have to be more chronic in nature. It wouldn't be like, I had one meal and it, you know, fixed all my fatigue. Like you might get some transient, you know, increases in glycogen and that kind of stuff that might help a little bit. That's what most people would find from say a, a refeed. They'd be getting these kind of transient, you know, increases in uh, glycogen storage and stuff. So they're like, oh yeah, I'm ready to go train when the fatigue is still, you know, knocking at the door. It's just kind of got down a little bit. So you would need to do it more chronically, three, four, five, six, seven days, you know, uh, where you eat more calories and that's going to help reduce fatigue. Now, again, that is somewhat theoretical, somewhat hypothetical, you know, like I, I've seen it work in practice, but I don't know if we have research that would be like, this is a great training uh, method overall to use a reload, you know? And so that is one thing that you can implement. You could just go, okay, the way I'm going to, I don't want to deload. I want to just fucking lift heavy weights. I'm willing to change my training block. I'm willing to go on to another exercise. I'm willing to go on to another rep range or whatever. You can still keep training hard and just have a strategic week where you eat more. Layering on that again, we like, what other recovery modalities do we have available to us? Sleep. Sleep is the big one, you know? So it's like, well, can you increase your sleep as well? Because most people can't in terms of they're like, well, I have a, a life, you know, I have to go to work. I have to do all that kind of stuff. But if you can modulate your sleep, I'm doing a week of extra sleep. You know, if you're like, well, if eight hours gets me feeling fucking on fire, well, 10 hours might get you feeling like you're fucking God, you know? And so if you're bringing that in, this is also a really good one. If you are starting to experience a little bit of disruption in your sleep, as you get towards that, the end of your training block, just being like, all right, sleep is being a little bit disrupted. So I'm probably accumulating some fatigue from just sleep deprivation, doing a train or doing a, a block of increased sleep, you know, and increased food as well. That's probably going to be something that really impacts your overall recovery or ability to recover, you know, and this kind of goes into something that people ask and do, which is a little bit silly in, in my mind. What they'll do is they're like, oh, well, I'm training less, you know, I'm doing a deload. So that obviously means I can eat less, right? And effectively, you're kind of negating the benefits of a deload. You know, if you are literally eating less when you're trying to recover, you're naturally going to recover slower. Effectively, you put yourself into this kind of deficit of energy. And while it might actually still be maintenance energy, because, you know, you've reduced your output in the gym and then you've reduced your calories accordingly, you aren't ever getting uh, to a stage where you are fully recovered. You know, you're not getting that benefit of those calories going towards recovery. You know, you're just doing enough to keep you where you were, you know, that's maintenance is maintenance. You know, you're just maintaining where you were, you know? So uh, in my mind, I definitely wouldn't reduce my calories just because my output has gone down because I'm doing a deload. If anything, I would think of it more as a, a reload concept and increase my calories and increase my sleep. Like the ultimate, if you're like, I feel like shit, I've trained hard. I did a fucking powerlifting meet and a bodybuilding show in the same week. You know, but people, people do that. Um, you know, you're just like fucking fatigue is off the fucking charts, right? You could do a reload week where you sleep more, you eat more and you train less, you know, whether that that's probably both a reduction in, uh, volume and intensity. 
you know, you could maybe fucking just not train for a week, you know, um, that would be an, an awesome reload and allow you to then get back into training and fucking enjoy it and not feel fatigued after that. What are your thoughts, Gary? I totally agree. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a very, it's a very simple thing. I think because, I think because it gets thrown around the, the topic of energy in the diet, it gets thrown around so loosely that people kind of, forget about what it actually means as in like like energy it like it, it is it's needed like it's it's just think, think of it like a battery you're literally just a battery yeah, yeah it's, it's just because we we talk about oh calorie deficit calorie surplus calories blah blah blah, blah. you forget that like it, it is literally the laws of physics and i know people kind of talk about it like very kind of loosely but if we're thinking about if we're thinking about like the laws of physics and we're talking about like human systems and you're talking about like trying to recover that system, clearly there has to be sufficient energy available. Like how are you going to recover that system if you do not have sufficient energy available for that to happen? Like the trade-off has to come from somewhere. And in this case, it's, it's just very clear that you need enough energy to be able to fully recover. And that's a very simple than increasing your calories getting out of a deficit and maybe into a bit of a surplus is definitely a good idea i think sometimes people worry a bit too much about pushing them in the wrong direction like they add 200 calories and they're like but am i going to get fat it's like all right at most you're in like a 1400 calorie surplus some of that is already going to be negated by the fact that you are eating more and there there are little adaptations to that the digestive process is required so you start to kind of trickle away and take away some of that surplus and the fact that you're introducing the surplus because you've accumulated a lot of fatigue so if your muscle glycogen stores were already depleted as you headed into that week and let's say you need to add 100 grams of carbohydrate to your glycogen stores then that's also going to be going there to be stored so it's not just a case of extra calories equals fat gain some of it's going to be going towards protein synthesis. Some of it will be going towards your glycogen stores. And maybe there will be a little bit of body fat gain. But it's going to be so negligible that it's really just not, not worth worrying about. You're dead right, Gary. Right. I'm going to wrap this up because I need to urinate. Um, so do you have anything final to say on the concept of deloads? I think that was pretty conclusive i suppose um or in depth at least for people to start thinking about this stuff as i've said before like realistically just talking about these things uh, on podcasts is not the best method for people to get information think of this as more of a launching point for further thought and further investigation because like we're going to forget to say things we're going to potentially say things in a manner that isn't the most well-worded you know you might be like well, what did they really mean when they said that you know and um, Whereas when we write articles, you get the full article and we can expand on our thoughts because we both edit each other's stuff. So it's like, what the fuck did you mean when you said that? You know, or that wasn't really clear. People are going to be confused by that, you know? So we can get a better understanding, a better discussion in the actual articles. So if you were only listening to the podcast, you are doing yourself a disservice by not reading our articles, you know? So I would definitely sign up for the newsletter. That's the first thing because then you get notified when new articles are out. You also get the articles we've posted on social media emailed to you and um, the links to them at least. Um, and the best place to find the articles would be on our site. You know, that's literally where they are, you know, rather than just waiting for when they come up on our social media 
prompter. You know, we have a, a schedule of posting that's, you know, done out until November of this year, you know? And um, so they will eventually come out there, but they'll be on our site before then, you know? And um, so definitely subscribe to newsletter, definitely read our articles on site because they're more in depth than just a discussion between two individuals who are, you know, waking up on a Sunday morning to do this and uh, just chatting shit most of the time. Um, and after that, social media, we're on all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube. That would do us a tremendous uh, favor. Also giving us a five-star review in the, the podcast, Apple podcast, fucking whatever it is, store, whatever, um, does actually help. We actually have quite a few on that. I think we've nearly 60, 70, maybe, I don't know. Um, so giving us a five-star review would be uh, enjoyable. Um, definitely as well. I would definitely 100%, 3000%, however many percent you can count to, uh, join the free Facebook group because we've lots of discussions in there. We're getting very active in there with different coaches, different individuals, trying to optimize their training practices, trying to just, you know, discuss things out, get a better understanding. And this is where we discuss anything in the articles or where we kind of, I suppose, audit uh, our audience where we're kind of like, well, what don't you know? What would you like to know? How are you actually putting this stuff into practice? Are you putting this stuff into practice? You know, and that's, that's effect effectively where we get feedback. So if you're not in the group, you can't give us feedback. You can't interact with us. You can't, you know, get the best source of information because people do that stuff. They like message you on Instagram, message me on Instagram, message a triage page on Instagram. And it's just a terrible medium for communicating. You know, like I can sit back on Facebook, open up my fucking word processor, write out the actual reply to that person's comment, issue, question, whatever in the group, and then paste it in there. Like, I just can't do that on Instagram. I'm on my phone and I'm like, oh yeah, like, half text speech, half like, oh, I wish I had a link that I could send you for that, but I'm, I'm not sending to, like looking up on Google for that and all that kind of stuff. Whereas if I'm sitting down on my computer, I can do all that and give you an actual clear reply, you know? And that's what you'll see in the Facebook group. So get your ass in there. And as we said in the start of the podcast, we do have uh, spaces left for online coaching and the group coaching, obviously we've loads of spaces left for that because it's near unlimited. We're actually really starting to take off with that. So if you are interested in getting involved with that, the new program, if this is, you're listening to this on the Monday that this released, the new program released yesterday, well, today, last night, you know, so you'll be on a new training week. So get your ass in there. If you are involved, you can get straight into your training, straight into enjoying training again, essentially outsourcing your training. If you're like, oh, look, I, I like kind of doing my, my own stuff, but I'm kind of getting a bit bored. I want to make sure I'm doing everything right, you know, but I don't want to spend all the money on one-to-one -one coaching, or I don't think I need to have that level of accountability, like weekly check-ins, that kind of stuff. You know, it's 35 euro for the group coaching per month, you know? So like we wanted to kind of democratize the whole fitness sphere. That's why we give out free information as well, because we do want to democratize fitness because realistically, I don't want someone to not get the results that they deserve, want, desire, all that kind of stuff because they didn't have enough money to you know, get it. That's why we put out so much free information. And that's why we also keep our, our eBooks and stuff. Uh, well, hopefully you think very reasonably priced, you know, because well, 
I do, you could argue that, oh, there's a paywall on that. Most people actually implement information better if there is some sort of paywall, you know? So we're trying to keep that paywall effectively as low as, as possible, where someone still puts money into it so they have some skin in the game where they're like, oh, I spent money on this. I'm going to have to implement it. Because you see that all the time. People get like free eBooks and they don't really do anything with the information and because you know, there's no skin in the game. They're like, oh, I just got this for free. People send eBooks around like that Gymshark hack the other day where Gymshark uh, got hacked when really it just recorded it from their app. Um, like people are like, there's loads of free information now, but people won't implement on it because they didn't put any skin in the game. They didn't, you know, buy the information, you know? So that's why we have paywall with that. Um, but they're quite cheap, you know, but we did want to democratize fitness because while we can help a lot of people achieve their goals with one-to-one, you know, you can also help a lot more with group coaching because again, it's a lower barrier of entry in terms of cost so you can also then outsource your health and fitness get the results that you want but not have to spend you know hundreds of euro per week or per month even um so that's why that's there again ebooks are available what we have merchandise available i'm wearing some now gary doesn't have any because he's a pleb um but uh yeah, merchandise available. Get on that. It's in the store. It's in the link. It's linked below. Um, do we have anything else, Gary? I just learned recently that there has been there's been like an email going around or a folder going around in which hundreds of basically businesses kind of like our own, generally like individuals, kind of make a bit of money for themselves. They put out programs. And basically what people have done is they've gathered them and put them all into these folders for free and shared them around with literally like thousands and thousands of people. And basically everyone has their free product. You do that to us, you'll have answers to give. Is this, we weren't done, we weren't done it though. Is, is this you like doing that thing where like your dad killed someone and then got away with it? Is that, <laughs> is that what you're suggesting you're going to try to do? Pretty much. Yeah. But we weren't in there and there was a lot of people I know in there. Uh, really was it like irish yeah it was mainly like women so i think it was like girls who wanted free programs fairly scum also don't call them girls you fucking misogynist well i'm not gonna call them women that's a very derogatory term woman um but yeah do you have anything else to add to that so i can go pee no we're done it's too easy all right enjoy guys